1899 was a pivotal moment in Ismaili history. It marked the beginning of the end of the Dori Satir, the time of concealment. This was a 150-year-long period during which the Imams had to hide their identity to avoid getting killed. It was a difficult time for the Ismailis, for sure, but the faithful remained resilient and patiently awaited the physical return of their Imam. They referred to him as the Savior, or the Mahdi, because someday he was to return and bring justice and peaceful rule to all. Prophecy from the time of the Prophet Muhammad foretold of the advent of the Imam. And for generations, the elders in hushed voices would tell their children to look to the night sky, that the face of the Mahdi would shine from the moon when the time was right. Welcome to 49, Pivotal Moments in Ismaili History, the podcast. Ismaili history is heroic, poetic, cinematic, and musical. Let my imagination be your guide through 1,400 years with the 49 Imams. It truly is the greatest story ever told. I'm your host, Sophia Alibai. I'm happy you can join me for the very first episode of the inaugural series that tells the story of the founding of the Fatimid Empire. Now, I have to let you know that I'm not a historian. I just really, really enjoy a good story. I recently discovered that buried within the pages of Ismaili history books are these priceless gems. It's a treasure chest of enthralling stories that are at risk of getting lost never to be thought of or enjoyed. Now for me, these stories are like a fire to my imagination. In my mind's eye, I can picture the scenes in high definition. And here's the best part, it comes with a soundtrack. I believe these stories are worth sharing and that's why I started this podcast. I assure you that I've used verified sources from the Institute of Ismaili Studies for the factual framework. But for the rest of it, well, in the words of the four tops, it's just my imagination running away from me. Let's begin our excellent adventure of the rise of the Fatimids with episode one, The Mahdi. The Dore Satir was happening during a time when Baghdad was the capital of the Abbasids, in the largest empire of the medieval world. It stretched from North Africa to the borders of China. It was the land of the Arabian Nights, with beautiful dome palaces and soaring minarets, the perfect setting for tales of exotic princesses, scheming wazirs, and benevolent caliphs roaming the land. But this story doesn't start in Baghdad. 
It starts at the edge of the Syrian desert, in the ancient city of Salamia. It seemed like an ordinary day. The markets were boisterous. The townspeople milled around, looking at the day's offerings, while keeping a wary lookout for the nimble thieves that roamed the alleyways. Steaming mounds of fresh-baked bread overflowed rickety wooden tables, and beggars squatted with their hands outstretched towards the vendors. Farmers called out to each other from donkey carts filled with vegetables as they rumbled along the main road. Barefoot children ran around, oblivious to the rows of camels trotting along with exotic goods from near and far. Weathered old men debated each other in endless conversation over tea. Their faces creased into suspicious frowns or toothless smiles depending on who was passing by. The air was filled with the pungent and earthy mix of ripened fruit, camel dung, spices, and fragrant perfumes. On the other side of the main street was the Grand Mosque with its towering black minaret. People gathered in the courtyard to hear the news of the day or perhaps hear the latest decree from the governor of the city. Further along, rows of mud and stone houses line the street. Women hung colorful scarves and woven rugs over the carved wooden balconies and gossiped with their neighbors. A web of cobblestone alleyways twisted and turned in an intricate maze that connected the old city. But this was no ordinary day. At the end of the long and winding road that led to the door of a stately home, there, in the secret library, the tenth hereditary imam of the Ismailis, Imam Razieddin Abdullah sat in a brocade chair with embroidered silk pillows supporting him. He was surrounded by piles of manuscripts and leather-bound books, a repository of knowledge collected and treasured by all the imams that came before him. On the wall in front of him hung a large faded map of the world. It was etched with fine calligraphic script and intricate hand-painted images of the major cities throughout the medieval Muslim lands. If one stopped to look closely, you could see overland and maritime passages across mountains and seas and remote valleys from the western edges of North Africa to the borders of Central Asia. On either side of the map were painted portraits of his father and his grandfather, all manifest imams like him. And just like him, they were manifest but hidden, veiled from the world and from their Ismaili followers, whom I collectively refer to as the Jamaat. But now, after 150 years, this period of Dori Sattar was about to come to an end. Imam Razieddin Abdullah knew the time was right. After many days of contemplation, he summoned his son Abdullah to join him in the library. And together, 
They sat, lost for hours, in deep and serious conversation. Sometimes, the Imam would point to different places on the map. Many times, his voice turned to a whisper as he placed his hand on the shoulder of his son, who knelt in front of him with his head bowed, listening intently to every word. We'll never be privy to that conversation, and my imagination won't even go there. But we do know that he tells his son that he is the next chosen Imam to be. He tells him that he'll journey far from his home, that the road will be fraught with hardship and he'll face many obstacles along the way, and that he, Abdullah, is the Mahdi that the Ismailis have been waiting for. Then, the Imam slowly slips a ring from his finger, a ring that had been passed to him from his father and his father before that. He takes the ring and places it on his own son's finger. Abdullah bowed and touched his forehead to his father's hand, in humble acceptance of the enormous responsibility that would be his fate. They continued to talk as the day started to turn to night. They talked as the sun disappeared, and they talked as a beautiful orange moon filled the sky with a brilliant, magical light. That night, as most of the world slept, there were those who heard the call of the moon. They emerged from their dwellings to gaze into the midnight sky, many of them falling to their knees in silent tears, in awe of what they saw. I'm sure some of you are wondering how all of this came about. Why were the Imams in hiding in the first place? Well, let's delve into the history a bit so the story has some context. We're going to go back to the year 750 AD. During the last few years of the Imamate of Jafar al-Sadiq, the Abbasids defeated the Umayyads in a popular uprising. The Abbasids built the beautiful round city of Baghdad along the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Baghdad flourished with new and old ideas, knowledge, and discoveries. But it was also a violent, turbulent world back then. Disputes between people or peoples were decided by the sword. So although it was known as the Golden Age, it wasn't so golden for the Shia. You see, the Abbasids came to power claiming to be the Chosen Ones, the rightful descendants of the Prophet through his uncle Abbas. Despite this, support for the Shia Imams was strong, and the Abbasids saw this as a threat to their power, and they defended their claim to the throne. They sought to fix the problem of the Shia Imams and their followers once and for all. And boy, were they merciless. The Shia were systematically targeted with brutal attacks, villages were destroyed, and the inhabitants were put to the sword in bloody massacres. Ultimately, the Abbasids wanted the Imam, 
a dangerous and tense situation indeed. Now, this is where things get a bit complicated. Before Imam Jafar al-Sadiq passed away, he appointed as his successor his son Ismail as the next Imam. But Imam Ismail supposedly died while his father was still alive. So when Imam Jafar Sadiq died, Ismail was nowhere to be found. In fact, there were witnesses who swear that there was a funeral for Imam Ismail, while others swear that the funeral was staged. A brilliant ploy to throw off the Abbasids who were surely to come after him. It's kind of like a scene from a Cold War spy movie. So during this whole kerfuffle, Imam Ismail's half-brother, Musa al-Kazim, claimed the Imamid, only to be arrested and imprisoned by the Abbasid Caliph. The Shia believers who gave their allegiance to Musa al-Kazim were known as the Isnashris, and they form the majority of Shia in the world today. But there was a small group of die-hard believers who fervently threw their support behind Imam Ismail and his descendants. And they're known today as the Ismailis. So, in the year 756, during this time of chaos when Ismailis were ruthlessly being hunted down, the Imamid passed from Imam Ismail to his son, Muhammad. But before the Abbasids could get to him, Imam Muhammad bin Ismail slipped out of Medina and disappeared into the obscurity of what I imagine to be a dark and stormy night. And into a century and a half of concealment. This time of murder, mystery and mayhem I assume, must have left the Jamaat bewildered and shell-shocked, not really knowing where to go or what to do. But during this time, the Imams still continued to guide and protect their followers. Imamid activities were conducted through the work of the Dawa, a clandestine organization made up of Dais or the Imams' secret agents. For all you Harry Potter fans, the Dais were like the Aurors in the Order of the Phoenix. They had their secret headquarters in a mansion with hidden doorways and a network of underground passages. It was nestled along a cluster of homes at the end of the long and winding road that led to the door of a stately mansion in the ancient city of Salamia. You could only get into the mansion if you knew the private code word. It was there that the head of the Dawa resided, Disguising himself as a merchant, he was recognized by the Dais as the Hujja or representative of the hidden Imam. Today, we know that he actually was the Imam, but at that time nobody knew. Not even the most stalwart of the Dais knew of the true identity of the Imam. Because as you shall see, some of the most die-hard of Dais would eventually go on to betray the Imam. So 
it was in the headquarters in Salamia where the dyes were initiated and trained, and given their highly classified and often dangerous assignments. From there, they spread out throughout the distant Muslim lands from Sindh to North Africa. They took perilous journeys far from their homes and their families to support the Imamate. They traveled across the sea to foreign places, journeyed into the harsh desert, climbed through rugged mountain passages and navigated remote valleys. Their mission was to set the stage for the establishment of an independent Ismaili state. All of this within hostile Abbasid territory. Needless to say, they worked in extremely hazardous circumstances. Anyone even suspected of being an Ismaili or an Ismaili sympathizer was jailed or executed by the Abbasid authorities. Be that as it may, the Dais remained devoted to their mission. For the Jamaat, the Dais were the only physical connection to the Imam because they brought blessings and guidance from the hidden Imam to his Jamaat, wherever they were. They passionately explained that the Imam's physical presence was ordained and that he, the Imam of the time, the Mahdi, would absolutely be returning. And for generations, the Ismailis waited faithfully for their Imam. Then, in the year 899, Abdullah became the Imam of the time, and he took on the title of Al-Mahdi. The Dais had painstakingly laid the groundwork for Imam Al-Mahdi to reveal his identity as the 11th hereditary Imam of the Ismailis. The stage had been set. After waiting a century and a half, the Dais had a heightened sense of anticipation. They knew the end of the Dori Sather was close at hand. There was a buzz and excitement in the secret Ismaili enclaves throughout the land. The signs were all there for those who believed that the return of the Mahdi was imminent. But the Imam knew that he had to proceed with caution. The Abbasid peril was still there. If they knew of his true identity, their reprisal would be swift and merciless. There was danger everywhere. But could anyone have foretold that the most menacing and urgent threat to the Imam would have come from within the Ismailis themselves? Imam al-Mahdi began by first confidentially informing his chief dies. They received handwritten letters with the Imam's personal seal. Some of them traveled to Salamia to give their allegiance in person. It was a time of overwhelming joy for the dies, many of whom had waited their entire life for this day. Well, that was true for most of them, because just like everything else, the Imam had good dies and bad dies. The ones who refused to bend the knee. 
Upon receiving the Imam's personal letter, the chief dies in Iraq, Hamdan and Abdan Karmat were flabbergasted. They vehemently refused to accept that Imam al-Mahdi was actually the Imam of the Ismailis. All this time, they'd been expecting the resurrection of Imam Muhammad bin Ismail. They accused Imam al-Mahdi of being a blasphemous imposter. They swore vengeance against what they believed was the false Imam, and they rallied their flock in a rebellion against him. But even more sinister and lethal was the zealous ambition of the renegade Dai Zikrawe. He also refused to recognize Imam al-Mahdi. He called for his sons, who were known as the man with the she-camel and the man with the mole. He asked them to gain the trust of the Banu Kal Bedouins who lived in the heart of the Samawa Desert. The two brothers claimed descent from Imam Muhammad bin Ismail. They referred to themselves as the Fatmiyun. They had considerable influence over these Bedouin tribes and succeeded in winning them over. Then, in the month of July, in the year 902, the Kalb gathered amongst the undulating, shimmering dunes of sand. A hushed, eerie silence had descended over the crowd as the man with the she-camel approached and ascended onto a raised wooden platform. He was barefoot and wore a long black tunic. His long, wavy hair whipped around his face in the wind. His eyes were fiery and hypnotizing as he surveyed the hundreds of tribesmen who had gathered to see him. He waited until there was only the sound of the wind and nothing else. Then he slowly raised his fist in the air and the tribesmen fell to their knees in prostration. In a booming voice, he proclaimed that there was only one Mahdi, and he was standing before them. Then he told them it was their duty to vanquish all their enemies, starting with the imposter. He ordered his followers to gather their weapons. Then they proceeded to march with the deadliest of intent towards the long and winding road that led to the door of a stately mansion, the ancient city of Salamia. And of course, none of this escaped the ever-watchful eyes of the Abbasids. This concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. Trust me, this story gets even better, and I can't wait to tell it. Remember, this is a dramatized account of an actual historical event, an embellished and imagined reality that comes with the soundtrack. For respect of copyright, I can't include the music in the podcast but I've created a playlist for the series. This can be accessed on Spotify under the title 49, the podcast. 
The song of the episode is The Long and Winding Road by The Beatles. Join me for the second episode where you can find out what happens next. This podcast is listener supported. I bid you farewell until we meet again. Thank you.